Welcome to the Brazil Church of the Nazarene Weekly Sermon Podcast. This is a message from Sunday, March 24, 2019, titled, The Disasters. This is the third message in Pastor Marlon Betts' Lenten series based on the devotional book, For God So Loved. Pastor takes a look at Luke 13 to find out what Jesus taught us about disasters. Here is Pastor with his message. Let's stand together as we look at Luke chapter 13 again this morning. Some of you have already read the passage in your devotional book this morning. Quit. <laughs> Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well. But if not... After that, you can cut it down. Lord, bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. It's good to talk to you again this morning, Lord, and to read your word, to share together with other Christians the fellowship of worship. Ask, Lord, now that you would speak to our hearts, draw us in to what you want to say to us, and we pray that we, as we are drawn in, will learn from you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Lent, uh, this is the third Sunday, and it's a time of fasting, self-examination, and spiritual growth. But Lent is only effective to those who take the journey. And some of you are taking that journey with us. As we go through Lent, uh, part of the thing about Lent to me is the discipline. <coughs> because in America, we are not very disciplined. If we want it, we get it. They've been advertising in the last couple of weeks, few weeks, bacon. And so I decided to try bacon on a Big Mac. Interesting combination, I thought. And so I was undisciplined, bought three dozen. No. <laughs> I went through the drive through line and got a Big Mac with bacon. And five dollars and two cents later, I 
came back to the office and bit into my Big Mac with bacon. It was okay. The point is, I spent five bucks on a hamburger. And uh, I can buy a whole eight-piece pizza for five bucks. Still not being disciplined, am I? I just think about these things. What was the big deal? If we want it, we get it. Right? Some people that can't pass a Starbucks without spending six bucks. It's just, I want it. What Lent does is help us to discipline some of the things that we want. In order to show God, I want him more. And I just think that that is just a a positive thing that Christians need to enter in on. Some of you are doing a good job. Some of you are giving up sweets. Some of you are giving up video games. Some of you are giving up a bad habit. Some of you are, don't give up the Bible. (laughs) Or, Or prayer time. I just want to throw that out. That discipline is something that we don't do very well. And we need to really focus on that during this time. Most people, I find, have a good opinion of themselves. We make excuses for our own faults. But we can easily point out the failures of others. Right? Especially if it makes our faults seem less important. You know, I'm a pretty good guy, and then there's Debbie. So if I focus on her faults, I'm a better guy. Maybe not. But I was reminded this week of Jesus' teaching. Jesus said that sometimes when it comes to faults, I'm going around looking for the splinter in Debbie's eye because I want her to see better. And it bugs me she's got a splinter in her eye when guess what? I got this big old saw log in my own eye. It's easier to see the splinter than it is to see the log. We've been taught to do that. Lent helps me to look inwardly at my own spiritual faults, my own attitudes, my decisions, my wrong choices, my good ones, my failures. And and it's hard to kneel before the cross of Christ. Before long, I would start seeing my own needs. And that is what makes Lent a good journey for us. Begin to look not at others and their faults, but look at Jesus and his sinlessness. And then examine yourself. And this is what the passage of Scripture we just read is all about. It's easy to judge someone else 
when bad things happen to them. But what about my own need to repent? For the worst disaster in life is for a person to die without Jesus. So will you let this passage speak to you this morning? First point I think Jesus is making is disasters happen. Disasters happen. Two different disasters are mentioned in this passage. In verse 1, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. You know, some people brought Jesus the news that certain Galileans had been killed by Pilate, the Roman governor. And we don't know much about this event. It isn't recorded in secular history. But we do know that Pilate was the Roman governor that was, that was placed in charge over Jerusalem and that area to keep the peace. And here he was at the center of Jewish worship in this capital city. And there was a constant challenge because the Jewish people did not like the Roman occupation in their country, let alone their capital city, let alone in the town where the temple was, where Jesus was to be worshipped. And yet he had control over the whole mess. And there was an incident prior to Jesus' ministry where, where Pilate actually sent soldiers out to kill pilgrims coming to worship for fear of at these feast days when all these people began to gather in. There were some zealots that would come in as well. And he was afraid of an insurrection, so he actually sent his soldiers out and they killed a bunch of them. The Galileans themselves, since they didn't live in that area, but actually lived up in uh, another area, were, yeah, they weren't as classy or whatever. I don't know what, what word you would use and, uh, as the Judeans, maybe. And so they were, they'd make that long journey down. They were not used to having maybe Roman soldiers in their town like Jerusalem was. And so sometimes they were a little bit, and plus... They were the outsiders who could come and stir up trouble and then run away. And so when the Galileans have this reputation of stirring up trouble, more so than the locals that live there. And since Jesus was a Galilean, those sharing this news would think that Jesus would be upset by this information that some of those from his area would be stirring up trouble and they got killed. What do you think about that, Jesus? Wouldn't you get a little mad? Most likely, these Galileans had come to Jerusalem on one of those feast days to worship, but Pilate got news that one of them or some of them were insurrectionists and there to cause trouble. So on his orders, his soldiers went in, found these guys, and they were in the process of having their sacrifices done, and so he killed them right there in the temple. He didn't care. And so the blood sacrifices of their animals mingled with the blood of the men who were being cut up by the swords of the Roman soldiers. This was especially disgusting and mean because it was in the temple. So you know the Jewish people were very upset about it. And Pilate was sending a very vicious message. You can't hide from me. This was a man-caused disaster, a major disaster. And Jesus brought up a second disaster in verse 4. Eighteen men on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Uh, unlike the first 
incident. This one seems more accidental or, I don't know, earthquake, strong wind, whatever happened. Maybe they didn't use proper materials when they built the tower, had weaknesses in it. But we don't know the purpose of this tower. It was located in the Kidron Valley, a little way from the Pool of Siloam and a short distance from the Mount of Olives. Sometimes the towers in rural areas were there to, for agricultural purposes, to get up and look and see. And I don't know exactly why it was built. Anyway, for some reason and without enough warning, this tower fell. 18 people were killed. Others were possibly injured if they were in the area. And this was a terrible disaster, like not too long ago, if you remember when that skywalk, I think it was by a college, collapsed down on the cars that were going down this five or six lane road below, and they were stopped at a stoplight, and all of a sudden, crash. It just happened, driving on a normal day, doing their routine. Our world today is full of disasters, natural disasters like hurricanes, tornadoes, flooding, earthquakes. We've had a a lot of natural disasters going on. Human-created disasters like terrorist bombings, school and church shootings, airplane crashes. And once in a while, we get one of those huge tragedies like 9-11. Disasters happen in life. The second point is that evaluation should follow. In both disaster situations, Jesus asked the same question, verse 2 and verse 4. He says, do you think that they were worse sinners than the other people just like them that who didn't die? The Galileans in the first case, residents of Jerusalem in the second case. Were these that died in these disasters worse people than those who didn't? This question went to the heart of the issue. The Jewish people had this assumption that disasters only happen to people who have committed sins. You recall in the Old Testament when Job lost everything, his three friends showed up and Eliphaz was was very pointed with his questions because he felt like if Job was getting all these disasters happening in his life where he lost everything, including his children, then therefore he must have sinned. And Job, examining himself, argued back, no, I did not sin. They went back and forth. They had this assumption. God blesses those who are good. God brings disasters on those who are bad. Even Jesus' disciples had bought into this because on one occasion they asked Jesus this question, who sinned, Rabbi, this man or his parents, because he was born blind. Just assumed there must be sin because this man is blind from birth. Disasters fall on people. That's why they had no problem not helping sometimes the people in their community who were lame or poor or blind or sick or or leprous or whatever. Because something bad must have happened in their life to get this. And there's a hidden assumption that the Galileans were killed by Pilate while offering sacrifices because they were sinners and God was punishing them. 
And since Pilate had appropriated some temple treasury money to do some construction projects around town, including the, the aqueduct work around the Pool of Siloam, then the tower falling and killing those 18 men was God's judgment because of the sin of misusing God's money. And maybe they were part of that construction project that was going on and taking wages Pilate was using out of the temple treasury. I don't know. Assumptions. And these two disasters are fairly common knowledge and we're leading the people into discussions and speculations and judgment calling. Why did this happen? Did they deserve this tragedy? What did they do wrong to make God angry that he would destroy them, kill them? And you have no doubt heard similar discussions following modern disasters. Every time a great calamity ensues, someone somewhere, maybe it's a preacher, declare it as a judgment that God is punishing people for their sins. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Sometimes in the Old Testament he did. Sometimes he did not. For example, after Hurricane Katrina, which we lived in Louisiana at that time, Religious leaders declared that the sins of New Orleans was the reason for that destruction. It was declared an immoral city, and they claimed that God caused a hurricane in order to spark a revival in the area, wake people up. I don't know how they knew that. Did he? Is God's judgment behind every disaster that occurs? I know that New Orleans was full of sin and evil. But was it any worse than, say, Chicago or Las Vegas or San Francisco? Probably not. What did Jesus say in this passage? To this assumption that these men who were killed were worse sinners than others around them, Jesus said the same thing twice. He said, I tell you, no. They were not worse sinners than the other Galileans or than the other people dwelling in Jerusalem. And you and I know pretty well that although New Orleans is a bad, sinful town, that there's plenty of sin in our town. Maybe per capita, there's more sin in our town than some of these huge towns. It's easy to point the finger at the bad town, the bad big city, when we have plenty of our own needs in our own backyard. Now, there are definitely times when nature, natural and man-made disasters have happened as a punishment for sin. The Bible is full of illustrations of this. But we do God a disservice by automatically assuming that this is always the case. Many times the rain comes down on both the evil and the good people. And it may be just rain. It may not be God's judgment. Jesus said, I tell you, no. We should not just assume that sin is always the cause of every time somebody has bad things happen to them. A proper evaluation is needed. We know that the judgment of God is coming someday on all sinners and all evil. It will come. 
We also know that sometimes God uses disasters to wake people up, to think about their life and their sin and their judgment and where they're headed. And that becomes the next point Jesus is making. Repentance is needed. Number three. Instead of judging others and trying to assign blame when disasters happen, the real point would be to examine your own life. Jesus said the exact same sentence twice in verses 3 and verses 5. Sentences are exactly the same. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, every person who knows the difference between right and wrong has sinned and needs to repent. That would include all of us in this room. All of us will perish unless we stop sinning and repent of our sins and have Jesus take care of them for us. In other words, quit trying to judge others for their sins when you have sins to repent of in your own life. Times of disaster happen so quickly. And those who are killed instantly have no time to repent. When the bridge falls, crash on the cars below, they don't have time to repent. When a plane crashes into a tower, boom, they don't have time to repent. And a lot of times we think, oh, I'll just go through life and stuff will just flow. And when I get old and I get on my deathbed, then I will ask God to forgive me. Good luck. Maybe it will work. But what happens before then if you're in a car crash? What happens if you're in that Boeing 737, whatever it is, that's been falling out of the skies? Do we have time to repent? When disasters happen, I think that's the point. The point is, not that they were sinners. The point is, when disasters happen, are we ready to meet Jesus? We focus all our attention on, oh, that other guy, he wasn't a Christian, and she, she was, and he... Well, the point is, are you ready? We need to do our repenting before the disaster strikes. That's good advice. It makes sense. So what is repentance then? The writer in our devotional book we've been reading for Lent, for God so loved the world, uh, he wrote in today's devotion that for today, and you'll read it if you haven't already, repentance means to feel remorse, to feel pain, to change one's mind, to turn away from sin and toward God, to change one's very way of life. So many people, they want to repent, but they want to stay the way they are. Repentance is about change. Change is hard. You can't repent until you get sick of sinning. Sometimes it takes real pain. You have to see the pain you're causing God. You have to see the pain you're causing those you love. You have to see the pain you're causing to yourself. And you begin to realize, I don't want to live this way anymore.
begin to have some sorrow over the hurt that you're causing. And that sorrow, when you're sick enough of it, will lead to repentance, and repentance will lead to the desire to change. And when you reach that point, God then accepts your confession, forgives your sin, removes it out of your life, gives you a spiritual bath, and helps you make the change permanent as you walk in the light every day after that. But you got to get sick of sin. And part of the problem today, as we started this whole sermon, was the fact that we want to do what we want to do. We hate to be disciplined. We certainly have a problem with someone else telling us what we're doing is wrong. And we really have a problem when God tells us. God has no right to tell me how to live my life. If you've got that kind of attitude, you need to repent. He has every right to tell you how to live your life. Now, we've only talked about personal repentance, which leads to salvation, but because that's the only way a person can know they'll be ready for heaven the moment a disaster strikes. Somewhere in their life, they've got to have a point of repentance. I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Please forgive me, God. But what about national repentance? Many of the disasters that happened to the Old Testament Israelites were not because of a person, but because of persons engaged in sin. When the majority of the people were disobeying God's will. One of the biggest national sins was installing idols in the country and then engaging and encouraging the people to idol worship. This was directly mentioned as a thou shalt not by God. And they knew it. I just wonder sometimes what our idols are. What do we spend our money on when we don't have money to tithe? What is more important? $5 Big Macs with bacon. If you buy enough of them, you won't have enough money for tithe. Seek first the kingdom of God. I've been talking about personal repentance, but now we're getting into national repentance because as a nation, there's thou shalt nots that a nation, as individuals, each one of us needs to work on. The parable of the fig tree in this passage can apply to both individual and national repentance. Many people see the fig tree as a symbol of the Old Testament of the Jewish people. There's other times when it is used in illustrations for them. And Jesus' listeners would have recognized this and would not have liked this story. The Jewish people thought that they were the only nation that mattered. But, but Jesus taught that the fig tree is planted in a vineyard. In other words, there's other people groups out there. And some of them were producing grapes. Some of them were doing what they needed to be doing for the, for the owner to come and be able to gather crops. 
But the fig tree was not producing. God's people have been given chance after chance and chance. Fig trees take a lot of work before they produce fruit, but three years would have been more than sufficient for it to start producing. But when it didn't produce, God, the owner, felt that it was wasting good soil and space and needed to be removed because something else could grow there. Another nation, some, some other people would, would gladly... Nations like America that hadn't been formed yet when this was written. We could use the good soil. We could live for Jesus. We can do things for God. It's wasting soil. It's wasting space. We've tried and tried and tried, and they won't follow my laws. But Jesus wanted to give it another chance. Let's work another year. Let's dig in the soil. Let's give it more fertilizer. Let's give it another chance. See, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Year after year after year. Lesson was clear. God had poured a lot of time and effort into the Jewish people. But again and again, they had refused to repent of their sins, and they refused to give God the fruit he desired, and he punished them, and then he gave them back their land, and he punished them and gave them back their land. If they would only accept Jesus, this was their final chance. Then they would repent and produce fruit. If they would accept him, he's right there. He's telling this parable. He's in Jerusalem. But we know what happened when they didn't accept Jesus and they didn't repent of their sins and they crucified Jesus on a cross. Only 40 years passed, less than 40 years. For they were totally destroyed. When the Romans got through with the city of Jerusalem, the temple did not have two stones on top of another. They even plowed up the floor. There were so many crosses with Jewish people hanging on them that they could not find any more wood to put another person on a cross. And we looked last week where Jesus is crying, Jerusalem, I would have put you under my wings. But you would not. And Israel is cut off as a nation and dispersed in judgment for hundreds of years. It wasn't until 50 years ago they became a nation again. Hundreds of years. Because they would not repent.
America has been in God's vineyard for 200 years. Plus. I don't know exactly how long. Not very long. Comparison to other nations. We have produced fruit. We've lived with a Christian ethic and a motto. We have influenced other nations. God has blessed us and we've made so much moral impact on this world. We sent missionaries all over the globe. But in the last 30 years, we have begun as a nation to sin nationally. Major, major stuff. I don't want to get into it. I started to list them, and I said, you know what? You know what they are. Our fruitfulness has been depleted. And I wonder how much longer God is going to let us waste his soil before having us cut down. I don't know all we can do to stop the rise of sin in our nation, but I do know that we can do something about our individual lives. The national problem is really about individuals making choices to sin. And it's also about Christians who have backed off from being the salt and the light in our culture, and we've stood back and allowed these things to happen, and we're scared to say anything. In our For God So Loved the World devotional book on Friday, Debbie said, boy, this lady, she's just laying it out this week. It's our new uh, general superintendent's wife. And she's writing the devotions this week, and, and on Friday she wrote about nominal Christians that need to wake up, repent, and return to a vibrant relationship with God. She wrote, repentance is more than just confessing sin. It includes doing things differently. It means completing the things we have left half done. Christians, they get saved and then they half do the Christian life. They don't go all the way in. I'll stop this one and this one and this one, but this sin I'm going to keep doing. This attitude I'm going to continue to have. And God is calling us not to be a half-done Christian, but to get all in. How many times have I jumped in? Instead of just sticking my toe in or going in up to my waist. Or... As Christians, you have to get everything to the whole Lord. It's called holiness. It's called sanctification. It's called coming back and kneeling at the cross again and saying, Lord, you are Lord of my life. I give you everything. (laughs) 
It means completing the things we have left half done, she writes. It means living as Christians even if it results in persecution. Of course, she comes from Africa. Miss Chumbo. Where they are persecuted. She concluded Friday's devotion with the same passion exhibited in the life of Christ must be reflected in our daily lives. A gospel such as this demands our wholehearted surrender. Nothing else will do. I surrender one-tenth is our song. So why do you preach so hard, Pastor? Because the responsibility is on my shoulders to preach the truth. And there's too many of them out there that aren't preaching the truth. And there's too many people that aren't listening. And I didn't pick this passage. They picked it for me. I've never preached this passage before. But it's telling us that we have a problem. The Jewish people thought they had it all together. And God destroyed them or allowed them to be destroyed three different times. And I don't want it to happen to us. But what's worse than a national destruction is for someone to come in and out. Psalm says, from the place of the holy. And then die and go to a devil's hell. And so I get concerned. I'm concerned about you. You see, Jesus taught that disasters have a purpose. Disasters should lead us to evaluate our lives and then repent of our sins. Allow Jesus to evaluate your life and then repent of your sins. And this should lead us then to a surrender to the kingship and the lordship of Jesus over every area of our life. I had, as an older teenager, had a teacher in Sunday school. Maybe he's a Sunday school superintendent. Brother Puckett. He was a layperson, worked a job. But he taught on Sunday and he had a passion and concern for the teens. One of the things I remember him saying, and I've done it, he says, I'm driving down the road, two-lane road. He says, I'll pick a truck semi coming towards me on the other side and I'll count down five, four three, two and I'll ask myself where am I in eternity I've done that Not intentionally, 
But in my mind, thinking, bam, when disaster strikes. And you use a semi because you usually don't walk away from that. Maybe once in a while we need to just count down five, four, three, two. And then say, okay, I'm in eternity. Where am I? Disasters lead to evaluation and repentance so that you know where you will go if a disaster strikes and takes you out of this world. Which leads to my next point. Thank God for grace. Thank God for grace. And now we can start smiling a little bit. Because after my semi-truck collision scenario, I usually breathe a sign of relief. I said, Jesus, I'd be with you. Right? Why? Because of the grace of God. That's why I know where I'm going. Because God in his prevenient grace reached out to me when I was a sinner. And he said, I, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he gave me chance and, and services and different things in my life. And, and finally I said yes and went to an altar prayer and gave my heart to the Lord. And he came in. That's called saving grace. When God washes away my sins and makes me a new creature in Christ Jesus. And I begin to walk with him. And he begins to show me stuff in my life. And I say, I, I don't want that anymore. I can't do this anymore. But I do need to start doing this. And I begin to change. Amen. And he begins to develop and work in my life. And then came along a time when I was in college when, when I, I had, oh man, some pretty bad attitudes. And God, I was judging people and whatever because I was a spiritual person. And God said, you know what? You got to deal with your attitude issue. And he began with sanctifying grace, got me in an altar prayer, and I had to empty out some stuff. I was pretty prideful. I was conservative. I'll tell you that story in more detail sometime, but God got a hold of my heart. And sanctifying grace, and I surrendered stuff to him. I surrendered my little red-headed girlfriend to him. I surrendered my plans. Somewhere along that way, I accepted a call to preach. Because I told God, if there's anything I would do, it won't be a preacher. Because my dad was a preacher, and I saw what he went through. But I had to surrender. And God's grace came in. <laughs> Held my first baby in my arms. And God spoke to me, what would you do if I took this baby from you? I surrendered my baby to the Lord. And everyone that followed. Jobs, churches, wherever I've been. Lord, it's not my church, it's your church. Just surrender to the Lord. 
The sanctifying grace of God just continually comes and pours out. There's one point in time when you give him everything you have. But since then, you continue to sanctify by God's grace. Him coming into your life and everything that you have, you give back to him. It's not my money, it's his money. It's not my car, it's his car. It's not my life, it's his life. Certainly not my wife. Certainly not my kids. They've all made their own decisions. They've all gone their own directions. She still sticks with me, thank the Lord. But you've got to give them to God. You have to give them to God, folks. And His grace works. His grace works. It helps in your attitudes. It helps in your actions. Anything that you surrender to the will of God, thank God for his grace. It works. And that is what Jesus is talking about in this parable. The fig tree was not producing fruit. The owner wanted to cut it down. But Jesus said in verse 8, let it alone for one more year. Give me the chance. Let my grace begin to work, and maybe she'll give in. Maybe he'll give in. Maybe they will give in, and maybe they'll surrender to Jesus. That's grace, folks. That's grace. And you've had grace in your life ever since the moment that you committed your first sin. Age five, six, whatever it was, and you knew it was wrong, and you started to do it because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. At that point in time, God could have taken you, and there had been no problem, but he kept giving you grace and grace and grace, and here you are 40 years later, and grace is still being poured out to you. If you have not accepted Jesus, it's only by the grace of God you are still alive. Thank God for grace. Jesus said, let it alone for this year also. Give this person, give this nation, give this fig tree another chance. Maybe she will repent. Maybe he will change his ways. Maybe they'll start producing for Jesus. Thank God for the grace. Thank you, Jesus, for grace. Again, with this word grace, we come back to our Lenten theme. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God loving a sinful world, that's grace. God giving Jesus to the world, that's grace. Jesus dying for our sins, that's grace. God allowing us the opportunity to believe in Jesus and choose salvation, that's grace. Whosoever believes in him. See, God didn't choose who would and who wouldn't. It's not predestination. It's grace. And God giving his children eternal life in heaven, that's grace. (laughs) Thank God for grace. Thank God for grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's grace. Grace. Most of the time, I don't like to think about disasters. But since this is Lent and we're examining our lives for spiritual improvement, this would be a good time to think about what if a disaster were to happen in my neighborhood? 
our first response might be, well, that neighbor across the street, down the road, they wouldn't make it. That should not be our first response. I know we need to be concerned about the unsaved around us, but sometimes when we get into judgment before we look at ourselves, we sometimes worry over the lives of others and their sins without examining our own hearts. Jesus' words are hard here, but now the focus should be less on what others have done and more on the type of people we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be people of repentance who bear fruit of love and grace to the world around us. So it would be good for us this Lenten season to evaluate our lives, to take time to repent of the things that are holding us back from the full relationship with Jesus and to grow the fruits God is calling us to produce. Because if we are not bearing the fruit of the Spirit with His help, then what must we do to ensure that we are repenting and being fertilized for growth? Maybe there are things in our lives that need to be pruned away. This is a key part of Lent, stripping away things that are keeping us from life with Jesus Christ. Maybe we need to add fertilizer, spending more time with the scriptures or in prayer, in a small group or doing ministry for others, doing the things God is calling us to do. As nominal Christians, we know if we just read a little passage from the devotional book that that'll get us by. But maybe God is calling us for more fertilizer, more prayer time. Maybe we need to spend more time in self-reflection instead of focusing on what other people are doing wrong. That seems to be the heart of this parable and this passage to me. Jesus is saying, why are you worried about the Galileans, the 18 who were killed by the tower, when you have to repent yourself. And if you don't repent, you will perish. And Jesus says, yes, but let's give them another year. Thank you, Jesus. You know, disaster should lead to a time of evaluation and repentance and to say, thank you, God, for for giving us this opportunity to examine, repent, make changes, and grow. And so let's think about it this morning. The worst disaster of all is to die without Christ. It's the worst disaster of all. Lord, as we change to family altar time now, we just want to ask you to come settle down with your spirit Speak to our hearts. Everyone in this room can do something to grow in their relationship with God. Help us to know that if disaster were to strike right here today, that we know where we would be, where we would spend eternity. This is not a scare tactic. This is a reality. Because one day we will face you. And I want to be ready. I pray that you will just guide us in the next few moments. There's nothing worth holding on to that will keep us from being all God wants us to be. Nothing is worth that. So, Lord, we would surrender those things to you today. We will confess our sins. We will surrender the rest.
It's not ours, it's yours. Thank you, Lord, for your grace right now. You're sweeping over us with your grace. You're showing us things. And Lord, our heart is saying yes to you. We're going to trust you. We're going to obey. We're going to change. So as we open up the altar for family altar time, would you just respond to him? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Change my heart, oh God, make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God, may I be like you. family, friends, that if disaster were to strike today, you know it would be without Jesus. I'm just inviting you to come and pray for them this morning. Something about making that, that effort to move forward that tells God that you're intentionally lifting them up in prayer today. I would certainly hate for my girls.
Lord, we call on you today on behalf of the lost. Our church is trying to do some things to reach out to the lost. Lay the burden on our heart, Lord. The burden starts in prayer. Help us as we pray. Lifting names to you right now. Lifting up those names before the throne of grace. That they may receive mercy. That they may receive help. That they may get an opportunity to find a place of prayer and repent. We're sorry for what our nation is doing. We're sorry for where leadership is taking us. But Lord, the change starts with individuals. I would pray that you would save our leadership. I pray today, Lord, that you would save those in our communities, our neighbors, our friends our family. I would ask, Lord, that as you give them an opportunity that they will say yes to the grace of God. Lord, we plead the blood for that one that's sitting in here this morning that doesn't know Jesus. We plead the blood over their heart and life, Lord. Oh, God, give them another year. Give them another opportunity, we pray, of God's grace. We call on you, Lord, because we weren't worthy of your death on the cross. You did it for us. No one is worthy. We're all sinners. But we thank you, Lord, for grace. We thank you, Lord, for mercy, for forgiveness, for another chance, and for another chance, and another chance. How many times, Lord, did you give us another chance? And we're asking you, Lord, we're begging you, give our friends and family another chance. Oh, God, help them to find Jesus before the disaster comes in their life. Lord, help them to find a place of repentance. We pray. Send the Holy Spirit to them right now. I pray that he will speak peace to their sin in their life and draw them into a relationship, a loving relationship with God Almighty. For Lord, you're not willing that any perish, but you want all to come to repentance. Lord, you said cast our care upon you because you care for us. Help them, Lord, to release that load and find freedom in Jesus Christ. Break down the walls today. Break down the chains. Set people free. Lord, set us free. For who the Son makes free is free indeed. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. You make us free indeed today. Be in our worship time together, we pray. Lord, minister to our needs in, in our worship as we focus on you, that everything else would, would fall back as being what it is, which is dim in the light of your glory and grace. Because, Lord, you are great. You are great, God. Nothing's too hard for you. We surrender to you today. We ask you, Lord, to take everything out of our lives that we need to give to you today so that we can be completely sold out to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow him. No turning back, no turning back. Thank you, Jesus.
be in our worship. Be in our worship. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. If you're looking for a church in the Brazil, Indiana area, the Brazil Church of the Nazarene invites you to join us as we seek Him, celebrate Him, and serve Him. Sunday morning, we have Sunday school at 9 a.m. and worship at 10 a.m. During worship, we have We Worship for preschool-aged kids and a children's church for elementary-aged kids. For this information, news, a schedule of events, and more, please visit us online at brazilnaz.com. That's B-R-A-Z-I-L-N-A-Z dot com. Or visit us in person at 1002 East National Avenue in Brazil. Thank you and God bless.